Hey, if, uh, if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, welcome. We are so glad that you have come to worship with us, spend some time together with us uh, to learn and to study God's Word. And uh, is our uh, slide, is, there it is. If you are joining with us, you can see we're starting a new series this morning called God and Sexuality. So um, maybe it's, a good, it's good news that you're here joining with us on this series, or maybe you're like, this wasn't the right day to come. Um, but this morning, we're going to be uh, diving back into the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we began the book of 1 Corinthians. If you remember, you were here last year uh, in the spring. We went through about chapter 5. Then we jumped over to chapters uh, 8 and 9 and 10. And now we're jumping back into chapter 6 and 7. And we're going to be uh, exploring these chapters together over the next several weeks. Uh, I did want to let you know that next week is Mother's Day. And I am going to be taking a break from our series for Mother's Day. And some of you will be very happy to hear that because you looked ahead and you know that the next section in chapter 7 verses 1 through 6 is the conjugal rights passage. And that would be a very awkward passage to be talking about on Mother's Day. So we will not be uh, going there. But I do want to invite you to bring... I thought that was funny. You guys didn't... <laughs> think that was funny. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you, you'll want to invite mom next week, or maybe uh, you got kids, you want to use uh, the fact that it's Mother's Day to cajole them to come to church with you. It's a great opportunity. And uh, we're actually going to be diving into a section in Proverbs next week, Proverbs 31. And uh, so that'll be a fun, fun little, little text. And uh, so if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you've not already done so, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Also, uh, as you're turning there, I wanted to acknowledge uh, Jonathan, who was uh, leading us in worship today. He's also uh, one of our interns here at Christ Church, but he graduated yesterday from Azusa. So... Uh, <laughs> He was a double major in global studies and psychology, so, so he knows all about the world and all about your soul, which is pretty impressive, right? It's an impressive uh, array of info. All right, you guys all in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? All right, let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we open up our Bible, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and our lives to your word. Father, we pray that you would speak and we ask that you would grant us ears to hear and attend to your voice this morning. Father, we pray that you would cut through all of the confusion in our culture, all of the hurt in our own lives that relates to this issue, and we pray, Father, that you would speak, that you would bring hope and encouragement and wisdom and direction, and we pray, O oh God, that you would make us attentive to your voice. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. So a few months back, my wife was at the vision doctor with one of my daughters. She's going through some vision therapy, and while she was there, they're sitting in the waiting room, waiting for their turn to be called, and a little boy who was about 10 years old walked up to the receptionist, and he requested that his file be opened and that the gender on his file be changed from boy to girl. 
And the receptionist was a little bit taken aback, and she said, well, uh, I, I can't really do that unless uh, a parent is here. And so he went back, and he grabbed his mom, and his mom walked up, and she you know, shook her head, yes, yes, go ahead, please uh, go ahead and change uh, the gender on his file from boy to girl. I was in a conversation uh, last week uh, with some friends, and uh, this friend was talking to me about a choral concert that he was at at Caltech. And he said that as he was at the uh, Caltech, you know, acapella singers concert, that uh, one by one, as the acapella singers were introducing themselves to the crowds, they introduced th- themselves by stating their name, and then that was followed by their preferred gender. And uh, preferred gender pronoun, that is. Uh, This weekend, uh, my wife sent me an article, and uh, it was from uh, the scientific uh, journal called Scientific American, and the article in passing referenced uh, the LBGTQIA2S community. Now, this was a surprise to me. I was very familiar with the LBGTQ, and actually for quite some time, I've been sort of confused as to the the fine distinctions between Q and L, B, G, and T, but uh, before I had yet to figure that out, uh, some more uh, letters were added, I, A, 2, S, and so my wife and I, we looked up on the internet, what do these terms mean? And it turns out that I refers to intersex, uh, A to asexual, and the 2S refers to two-spirit, which then I had to look up what did that mean, and actually what does intersex mean, I had to look up these terms. And these three experiences kind of back to back to back uh, kind of just made me think, I I sort of had this, this phrase resounding in my mind, Toto, we are not in Kansas anymore. Now, I don't say that I didn't think that because I used to live in New Mexico and now I live in California. Um, Actually, I was born and raised in California. In fact, I was born and raised in one of the most progressive cities in California, Long Beach. I went to the public school system. I went to Long Beach City College. Uh, My wife is a graduate of Cal State Long Beach. And so we're we're very familiar kind of with more progressive uh, people, more progressive ideas, and yet, I have felt that over the last five years in particular that I have experienced, I'm sure many of you have felt this way too, that we have experienced something of a seismic shift in our culture when it comes to issues of sexuality. There's been a massive, massive ideological shift in our culture. And very often the ideological shift is put put forward as Uh, kind of deconstructing the old norms of the past regarding gender and sexuality and marriage. Uh, These old norms have been perceived to be uh, domineering. They've been sometimes uh, have felt to be violent or coercive, manipulative. Uh, They have felt to be oppressive. And so those old norms have been deconstructed. But what I think that the story of the little boy in the vision office reflects is that although old norms have been deconstructed, they have not been replaced with simply a vacuum. There has been a new ideological construct that has been impressed or that is being impressed upon many of our families, our children, and within our culture today. 
And although this, this new ideology is oftentimes pitched as being more liberating, oftentimes for those who are not yet comfortable with this new ideological drift, uh, you can feel like you are named as regressive, as uh, intolerant, as bigoted. And this is kind of the air we breathe. This is the new culture we inhabit. And I think for many of us, we find ourselves a bit confused. And I know if, if you are younger and you're kind of growing up in this world, you have friends who struggle with their own gender identity. Uh, many of you in your own families, you have family members, dear close friends who uh, have known what it means to, to, to feel same-sex attracted. Uh, many of you in this room have been deeply hurt and you carry wounds from issues surrounding sexuality. Maybe you have been abused. Uh, maybe you have been hurt in the past. You've been betrayed. You've been wounded. And I think all of us carry some wounds. We carry confusion. We know friends. And all of this kind of has muddied the waters for a lot of us when it comes to issues of sexuality in our own lives. And of course, within churches, a lot of times, divorce, uh, pornography use, uh, infidelity is just as common in churches as it is outside of churches. And so many people who are outside of the church and who do wrestle with same-sex attraction or different sexual issues, they call foul when they look at the church because it just feels like hypocrisy. Because it seems like a lot of the junk that the people in church are criticizing out in the world is happening just as frequently inside the church. And so this puts us in, I think, very complicated, uh, complex waters as we seek to, to kind of navigate life in the 21st century. I wonder if I'm alone in feeling that way. But he else feeling that way? And you find it, it difficult, some of you, to interact with your children or with siblings or with friends. And, and you're, you're kind of, you're trying to figure out, how do I engage in a way that is gracious and that is loving and that reflects uh, what Jesus is about in this world? Well, this morning, we are going to spend some time diving into Paul's letter that he wrote to the first century church in Corinth. Now, it is clear that increasingly we are living in a culture that is becoming more and more at odds with biblical norms regarding sexuality and gender and marriage. But one thing we need to be clear on is that we are not the first age in which the church has been at odds with the surrounding culture and what they say regarding these issues. In fact, uh, the first century church in Corinth was very much immersed in a culture that did not support, it did not espouse, it did not follow uh, kind of biblical values when it came to gender and marriage and sexuality. In fact, uh, it, it was arguably uh, the case that First century Corinth was even more at odds with sexual ethics and scripture than our own culture is. You know, our own culture is oftentimes marked by the idea of sexual freedom, which could be defined as I can do what I want, when I want, and with whom I want, so long as I don't hurt another person. Now, in first century Corinth, they might have agreed with the first of that statement, but it would be qualified differently. They would also say that we are free to do what we want, when we want, with whom we want, but it would be qualified by this. If you had money and status and power, you could. 
irrespective of whether or not it hurts someone, especially if they were in a lower status and lower class. Uh, First century Corinth was brutal. In fact, the Roman Empire in the first century was a sexually brutal place. It was a place where oftentimes uh, children and women were marginalized and taken advantage of and exploited, especially if they were a part of the slave class. They did not hold Roman citizenship. They did not have money. They did not have power. It was basically legal to take advantage of people who were of lower status than you, and people did it all the time. Uh, sexuality was very much inter- intermingled with their religious practices. In the city of Corinth, uh, the most significant temple in the city was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. Does that name sound familiar to you? She was the goddess of sexuality. There was a thousand temple prostitutes in the city who were there ready and able to uh, service the needs of any who would go to them. Very often, uh, if you were in business in the first century, you were a businessman or a businesswoman or whatever, and you would go uh, to meet with somebody for social networking, where would you go? Well, the restaurants in the first century city of Corinth were typically connected to the temples. Do you know why? Because there was animal sacrifice at the temples, and they had to do something with that meat, and so they would prepare it, and they would serve it at these dinner parties. And because it was connected with these temples, very often religious practice was intermingled with sexual deviation, and so very often at these dinner parties, they would bring in the entertainment afterwards which would oftentimes include boys and young women, and it was just a sexually perverted, gross place. And it was here that the Apostle Paul came and announced the good news that God in Jesus Christ had defeated the powers of sin and death and darkness, and he was now forming a community of love and equality where there was neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but all were one in Jesus Christ. All could be equally a part of the family of God. All could equally share a meal at the same table, and all would be inhabited by the Holy Spirit. And this news, as it went into this city, became good news for a whole lot of people. And they responded to this, and a new little gathering of believers was formed within this city. Now, Paul spent about 18 months with this church, seeking to ground them in the gospel and in the way of Jesus. But after he left Corinth, the the church that had begun well began to compromise And it began to accommodate to the norms and the values of the surrounding culture. And so rather than being the church of God in Corinth, uh, the church became the church in whom uh, Corinth and its values dwelt. And those values began to infect and infiltrate the church. And so Paul hears about this and he writes to this church in order to clarify for them a whole lot of different issues where they had accommodated to the culture. But one of the issues that Paul was passionate to clarify for them was issues surrounding sexual ethics for the church. And so Paul dives in in our text that we're looking at here and all the way into the next chapter, and he clarifies for this church that was surrounded by a culture who did not share their values and their practices and who had all kinds of deviant stuff going on. He clarifies for them, here is what it looks like to follow Jesus in the realm of sexuality. And so I want us to explore this morning and in the next several weeks together what he says. So we're going to begin this morning by looking at chapter 6, verses 12 down to verse 20. 
And I want you to explore what Paul says with me here underneath three headings. Uh, Number one, we're going to talk and we're going to see what he says about the nature of sex. And then secondly, we'll see what he says about the myth of freedom. And then finally, he's going to talk to us about the true Lord of our bodies. So he's going to talk to us about the nature of sex, the myth of freedom, and the true Lord of our bodies. And let's notice first what he says about the nature of sex. Look at what he says back at verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach meant for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and he will also raise up our body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them a member of a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that the one who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now stop there. To kind of wrap your minds around what Paul is doing in this text, you need to understand a rhetorical device that he's using. He is drawn upon a rhetorical device called the diatribe, where he essentially asserts a slogan that the church has been repeating, and then he rebuts it. It would be kind of like if I said to you, hey, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But that's false. Because what happens in Vegas stays with you and you take it home and you cannot get away from it. And do you see what I've done? I've quoted a slogan that you all know and then I've rebutted it. And that's what Paul is doing in our text. He's quoting slogans that the church knows and are aware of in order that he might rebut it. And so you see a number of slogans that he quotes. He quotes, uh, and the, 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 the statements on the left are the slogans that the Corinthians knew, and the statements on the right are Paul's retorts to those slogans. And so they said, all things are lawful for me. But then Paul says, but not all things are beneficial. They said, all things are lawful for me. He said, but I will not be enslaved. They said, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. And Paul said, yeah, but the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And they said, God will destroy both one and the other. And he says, oh yeah, God is going to raise, he raised the Lord and he will raise us up by his power. And so do you see what Paul is doing? He's quoting their slogans and then he's rebutting them. Now the slogan though that I want to draw your attention to right now is the third one. And it shows up in verse 13 when he says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one for the other. And what Paul is doing here is he is using this slogan in order to identify a common cultural attitude about sex. Just like food was meant to meet an appetite for the stomach, so sex was merely meant to meet an appetite for the body. And so, the, so if you were hungry, you should eat. If you're thirsty, you should drink. And if you're sexy, you should sex, according to the Corinthians. They said, look, it's just a bodily appetite, feed it. I can remember back when I was in Albuquerque, one of my elders was a doctor, and sometimes during an elder meeting, uh, he would announce that we were going to have a bio break. 
Now, at the very, at very first, I never knew. I was like a bio break. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? But he was a doctor. He meant you're gonna, we're going to have a biological break where you can go take care of your biological needs in the restroom, you know? And uh, that's, have you heard that term? Is that common? Yes, some of you have. Maybe it's a more polite way of saying, let's all get up and use the restroom now. <laughs> but there's a sense in which the church in Corinth would say, look, sex is simply an appetite. It's simply a biological urge that needs to be met. And Paul draws a contrast with this attitude about sex, that it is simply a biological need and nothing more with the biblical vision of sex, which is found in Genesis chapter 2, which he quotes a little bit further down in the passage, where Paul says, or where, where, where God says in Genesis 2, for it is written, the two shall become one flesh. And he's appealing here to the story in Genesis 2 of the first marriage. And many of you will remember how the story goes. There's one account of creation in Genesis 1, and then there's another account in Genesis 2. Genesis 1 is kind of the cosmic account, and it's like in Genesis 2, we move into the backyard. And we're looking at the dirt, and God forms the man from the dust, and he breathes life into his nostrils, and the man becomes a living being. But then God declares it's not good for the man to be alone. And so he brings to the man out of all of the animals, uh, he brings the, the animals to the man to see what he would name them and to see if there was any suitable to be a helpmate for the man. And there was no animal that was suited for the man. And so then God, as the story goes, puts man under a deep sleep. And while he's asleep, he takes the rib out of his side and he fashions the woman. And then God form, performs the function of the father of the bride and he takes the, the bride down and he awakens Adam to the groom and it's as if God performs the first marriage. And right when Adam wakes up, he sees this woman and he breaks into, he breaks into song and poetry. He says, she is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. I know it doesn't sound that impressive to you, but in Hebrew, apparently it's quite a bit of poetry. He's like, man, I've been looking at aardvarks all day and look at her, you know. He's pumped. And then God performs the first wedding and then it says the two shall become one flesh. And here, the scriptures are giving the biblical vision of sex. And here is sex according to scripture. Sex is intimacy reserved for the context of marriage covenant. In other words, sex is a full disclosure, utter vulnerability and risk. It is a full giving of yourself to another, to be for them and not against them. And because it is done within the context of a marriage, it is safe to be vulnerable. It is safe to take risk. It is safe to be known because this person will know you all the way down and they will love you still, and they will not walk away. And here is God's intention for sex. It is reserved for the covenant of marriage, for the safety and the boundaries of marriage. In Scripture, sex is beautiful, and it is God-given, and it is incredibly powerful. When he speaks here about the two becoming one, he's talking here about a mystical union that happens. He's saying, look, something beyond the physical is happening in sex. And you can relate it in some ways to food. 
You know, when you go sit down at a meal with a family or with a group of friends, so much more is happening than simply consuming calories. There is a social and a relational and a spiritual dimension to that practice. And so too, when two people come together and they engage in that great intimate act, something more is happening than simply a biological fact. There is mystery and there is something transcendent and there is something wonderful happening there that is binding these two people together. In fact, a biologist will tell us that in the act of sex, in the same way that when a mother nurses her child, certain uh, hormones are released that are bonding agent hormones that draw, that attach the heart of the mother to that child, so too in the act of sex, hormones are released that bond two people together. So there is a mystery and a beauty and a power to sex. And so because of that, he says, look, take care that you don't distort its original purpose. Because if you do, it will lead to harm. You know, when I was little, um, I got my first surfboard, and I had an uncle who surfed, and he handed us uh, down an old surfboard. And my brother and I used to take that surfboard, and uh, because we were not good swimmers yet, this is like second and third grade, uh, we would just take it and we'd set it in the pool, and we would run off the side of the, the, the pool, and we'd jump on the surfboard in the pool, and we'd kind of ride like this. But a surfboard is made of fiberglass. And so when we'd fall, uh, the surfboard would fly out, and it would, bing, it would bang against uh, the wall of the pool. And we'd put these massive holes and dents in a surfboard. Now, when fiberglass opens up like that, it starts to get itchy. It gets in your skin. And so over time, we got more and more holes in the surfboard. Now, why was that? Well, because we were not using it as it was intended to be used. Now, it was fun. It was great. But, you know, when I got a surfboard out in the ocean and I paddled into a wave and I learned ultimately how to drop in and do a big bottom turn, and when you, you know, position yourself and the wave just throws over you and you get in a barrel, (laughs) like there is no experience like that in all the world. And what we were doing before was a cheap imitation. And so too, when sexual intimacy is reserved for its intended place, it is beautiful and it is good and it is rich and it is fulfilling. But when you take it out of that, you get dense and ultimately it can harm you. And that's why Paul says a little bit later, notice what he says in verse 18, he says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And what he's saying there is that you bring destruction, you distort yourself when you engage in sex as it was not intended to be used. And friends, that is why there is such a world of hurt and pain around the issue of sexuality because it is powerful and yet this powerful good that God created for an intended place has been distorted and it creates all kinds of pain. So Paul here is contrasting really when the, 
the true nature of sex, that it's covenantal, it's intended for the confines of marriage, when you are ultimately vulnerable with another person physically, is also where you become emotionally vulnerable with them, and spiritually vulnerable with them, and economically vulnerable with them, and you devote your life to this other person, that is the context for a rich, vibrant, intimate relationship. So that's the nature of sex. But he moves on from the nature of sex to the myth of freedom. And look what he says in verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved to any of them. So Paul says, look, he, said, he quotes the Corinthian slogans back to them, all things are lawful for them. And in some sense, this is the mantra of our own culture. Our culture essentially says, follow your desires. Do whatever you want to do. Follow your heart. And if this is what your heart wants, if this is what your desires want, then why would you withhold anything from your heart and your desires? These are your deepest longings. This is who you are. And Paul says, be careful. Because there is some freedom that can actually lead to slavery. He says this, all things are lawful for me, but not everything is helpful. And some things are even enslaving. You know, my my wife and I have a family member who is a meth addict. And a few months back, we helped get her checked into a treatment center. And we had done all the research, and we kind of looked at different treatment centers. And we found this one, and it looked fantastic. It was in Costa Mesa, and it had great reviews, and it was a great environment. And we took her there, and we checked her in, and she had to willingly check in. But here was the catch. They couldn't hold her there against her will. And so even though we checked her in for a month and paid for a month, she left after three days. And they couldn't do anything to stop her. They couldn't restrict her freedom. But question, was she really free? Several days after that, I went into downtown Santa Ana looking for her. And I found her in a park. She was sitting on a curb. And there was a man kind of walking back and forth around her, kind of prowling around her. And I walked over there with uh, my dog, Brutus, who's a dark, big, scary pit bull. And I walked up to her and I said, you know, you got to come home with us. And I started to plead with her and talk to her. And then the man who was prowling back and forth, who was a pimp, threatened my life. And he says, if you don't get out of here, I'm going to kill you. Is she free? She's in bondage to her own desires. She's in bondage to these oppressive people around her. And yet, on the other hand, oh, she's free. You see, there's some freedom that can actually be enslaving. And that's true in the arena of drugs, and it's also true in the arena of sex. It's true especially in the arena of pornography. You know, there is such power and such dynamism that goes off in the brain and there's dopamine that's released and there's addictive potential in pornography as well as in all kinds of sexual behavior. And like other kinds of addictions, the more you get into it, the more you need and the deeper and darker you need to go to get your fix. And it is utterly destructive. 
And this is what the sexual revolution is doing. It's destroying men and women. It's destroying body image. It is destroying marriages. It's destroying relationships. It is toxic, toxic stuff. And so Paul says, flee sexual immorality. This stuff will enslave you. And I just want to talk to you for a second, man. If you are playing maybe with a relationship you have with somebody who is not your spouse, you've been going to lunch, you've been exchanging text messages, you've been flirting, maybe you've been playing on the internet, maybe you've been, you've been you know, being sexually active outside of marriage, I just want to warn you, this stuff is powerful and it is enslaving and it is destructive. And I bear witness to the fact that God's design for sex in marriage is good and it is beautiful and it brings wholeness and a rich, deep relationship. And so Paul says, flee sexual immorality, run away from this stuff. And so here he is exposing the myth of freedom, not all freedom, not everything you are allowed to do should you do. Not everything that you can do is good for you to do. So he exposes the myth of freedom. But I want you to see thirdly, after he discusses the nature of sex and the myth of freedom, he wants in this passage, and this is kind of the main thing in this passage, he wants us to show us the true Lord of our bodies. And here's where Paul moves from kind of a very general ethic that could be good for all people in all places at all times, and he moves specifically to a sexual ethic to govern the church, to govern the baptized community. And look at how he describes it in verse 14. Look what, he, or look what he says in verse 13. He says, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. He says, your bodies." your embodied existence. And when he's talking here about bodies, he's not simply talking about flesh and bones. He is talking about the whole person. The word in Greek is soma, and soma refers to your entire embodied existence. You know, sometimes we have this idea that we serve God with our spirit, but then our bodies are off in the world, you know, doing uh, this, that, and the other thing. It's performing our jobs during the week and this, that, and the other thing. But then our heart, in our heart, we worship God. But according to the scripture, God owns your body. In fact, in our text, it says, he says, look to the past. He says, God has bought you. On the cross, Jesus Christ shed his blood in order to purchase you away from the power of sin and death and darkness so that you might come underneath a new rule and a new Lord. You have been bought with a price. He says this in verse 40. He says, you are, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. He says, look back. And then he says, look at your present. He says, in the present, he says, you have been united with Christ. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? He says, your hands, your, your legs, your feet, your mind, your eyes, your entire person belongs to Jesus. You have been united with Jesus. And then he says this in verse 17, he says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You have been united with Christ. 
And then he says, you in the present are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Look what he says in verse 18. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? These are precious words. He is saying that the very personal presence of God has come to inhabit your life. God is with you. He walks with you. He, 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 he goes with you throughout the day and throughout the week and where you go and where you sit and what you look at. There is God. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, look into your future. In the past, you have been purchased by the blood of Christ. In the present, you are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And in the future, you will be raised by God's power. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And do you see what he's saying? He is saying, you look at your past, you look at your present, and look into the future, and you see, you draw the conclusion that you are not your own. Your hands, your eyes, your feet, your bodies, you all in your entirety belong to Jesus. Jesus wants your body. He wants the whole of you. He wants everything about you. He wants you to, he he wants to to, to live his life through your your life and, and have you extend his love to others around you. This is why you exist. You are not your own. And so he draws the conclusion at the end. He says, so glorify God in your body. And I think at least what he is calling us to do here is this. He is saying, look, in our culture, we value so much free expression of our desire and of our hearts. Follow your hearts, follow your desires. But the problem is, what if your heart and what if your desire is going after the wrong thing? What if you're desiring stuff that's enslaving and that's destructive and that's toxic to your life and to your marriage and to your family and to your parenting and to your neighbors around you? What if it's toxic and poisonous? Your desires and my desires need to be trained so that we learn how to desire and love rightly. We need to train our desires so that we desire what God wants in our life. And how do you train your desires? Well, when I was a child, I remember... I remember I I used to actually uh, love to ride my bicycle and go up to the liquor store so that I could purchase... uh, They had this little pack. It's like a little four-pack of these things called dipsticks. Have you guys seen these things? And a dipstick is like a, it's like a, a little stick that's made of sugar, and then you, you lick it, and then you dip that stick into sugar. <laughs> Actually, it's not even sugar. It's, it's, it's like dried out high fructose corn syrup. And then they, 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 they pour these toxic dyes in there. And as a child, I had a desire for this. And so I would go up there and I would buy these things and I would dip them in. I didn't have any desire for broccoli. I didn't have a desire for salads, but I did have a desire. But here's the thing, you develop an appetite for what you feed yourself. And the more you feed yourself junk, the more you will want junk. And the less you put yourself in healthy situations and you feed yourself healthy stuff, you will not desire healthy stuff. And so here's the thing. 
Before your desires change, your actions need to change. You actually need to do everything you can to put a guard on your life so you stop feeding yourself toxic sexual distortions. You ever look at a person and you wonder, how does that person become a pervert? It happens over time by giving yourself over and over again to twisted desires. And the more you give yourself to them, the larger they grow and the uglier you get. Just ask Schmeagle. You remember Schmeagle in The Lord of the Rings? He starts out as a hobbit-like creature. And then he, he, he discovers this ring of power. And the longer he has the ring and the more he puts it on, the more it begins to tweak and distort his desires so that this is the only thing he wants. And friends, our brains, our desires, our minds, our lives are being twisted and tweaked because we have not followed the wisdom of Jesus in offering him and glorifying him with our bodies and our hands and our minds and our eyes and our lives. And so Paul says, flee sexual immorality and glorify God in your bodies because Christ has come after you. And listen, I'll end it here. You know, when I first set my eyes on Alicia and got to know her and then started to think, like, I really want to ask this woman out. And she was dating a friend of mine But I didn't see a ring on her finger, so. And he had moved to Iowa anyway. I thought their relationship was on hard times. But I did think to myself, whatever it takes, she's worth it. And I remember calling her up, and I was totally nervous, and I asked her out on a date, and she said, let me check my calendar, and I'll call you back. (laughs) So she checked her calendar, and what she meant was she, she called her, her boyfriend, who then became her ex-boyfriend, and then called me back, and she said, I'll go out with you. But you know, the reason why I asked her out was because she was beautiful, and she was godly, and she was intelligent, and she was, there was so much about her that I thought, man, if, if, if I could get Alicia, I would be marrying up. I and mean, she's an incredible, an incredible woman. And oftentimes, this is what we do when we fall in love. We find somebody who is lovable, who is desirable, and we go after them. But here is the good news of Christianity. God does not look out at creation and find all of the lovable, desirable ones and then go after those ones and ignore the other ones. God goes after the ones who are in need of love. And by his own love, he makes us lovable and desirable. When we open ourselves up to his beauty and his goodness, we start to change and we become more and more beautiful as we look more and more like Jesus, as we look into his eyes that know us all the way down and love us still. And I just want to say, I don't know where you find yourself this morning, but I imagine in this room, there are some of you who are full of guilt and shame 
Some of you are addicted and you are in bondage right now. And I want you to know that Jesus is not far from you and he loves you and he is ready to forgive you and embrace you, but you must come to him. And he is ready to help you get untangled from the web of addiction and to have you be released. But you have to come clean. You have to be honest. You have to disclose yourself to God and to your neighbors and sometimes to your spouse. You need to disclose what's going on in order to find freedom. But when you do that, you find a God who is loving and who is generous and who is ready to forgive, a God who knows you all the way down, he knows everything about you, and he loves you still. But you need to come to him. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now, and we confess that we live in a very broken and a confused world. Many of us are broken and confused ourselves. Some of us have been wandering outside of the church and we're confused there. And some of us have grown up in the church and we still find ourselves confused and conflicted. We find ourselves with, with desires that are displeasing to you and that are harmly, harmful to us or our neighbor. And God, we confess that to you and we cry out to you for mercy. And we pray, oh God, that even as we come to you with honesty and with truth, that we might find you to be gracious and forgiving. And I pray, Father, that you would be with those in this room right now who might find themselves in dark places. God, bring them out of the dark into the light of your love so that they might know your grace and forgiveness. Amen.